GP Core content. This episode is on depression. I'm going to talk about a general approach to depression and then um, details of management, um, care plans, and legal aspects of mental health. Um, so, you know, in the scenario, you have a patient who presents with depression. The key is to differentiate uh, organic causes of depression from non-organic causes. So basically in your history you just want to explore the depression. Um, you know, you can use the SATA FACES uh, acronym to do that. But basically you want to talk about, you know, how long have you been depressed for? What do you think is causing the depression? How severe is the depression? Does anything make it better or worse? Uh, how is life at home? How is your money situation? How's family? How's work? Uh, you want to explore SNAP, so and talk about you know alcohol intake, nutrition, activity, um, and any drug intake as well. Uh, and then you want to talk about sadder faces, so you want to explore um, you know whether there's any you know anhedonia, change of mood, loss of interest that people used to be interested in interested in. Um, Depression, any psychomotor retardation, lack of concentration, excessive guilt and suicidality. Um, and the diagnostic criteria for depression are at least five of these symptoms every day for two weeks with one of the first two. So, the, you know, you need one of either depressed mood or uh, anhedonia. Uh, and the overall criteria are, you know, depressed mood, loss of interest in things, weight gain or weight loss, sleep disturbances, psychomotor retardation, loss of energy, worthlessness or guilt, impaired concentration or recurrent thoughts of suicide. Um, and you want to explore the red flags in depression. So basically the red flags are going to be uh, risk of harm to self or others, it's a suicide risk, uh, self-harm or harm to others. So the components of the suicide risk assessment um, are you want to explore whether there's been any suicidal thoughts, any plans, um, whether the patient has any means access to suicide, whether they've had any past history of suicide, whether there's any changeability or impulsivity within that. Uh, and you want to wrap that within a mental state exam. So make a judgment of the patient's appearance, behavior, judgment, speech, thought form, uh, impulsivity, emotional state, emotional lability, uh, and appropriateness. <coughs> so moving on to the examination in depression, you want to start with general appearance and OBS. Um, you want to do a mental state exam uh, and you want to screen for any organic causes of depression so looking at thyroid for hypothyroid, uh, looking at respiratory exam uh, for anything that might be you know causing shortness of breath and lack of energy in that regard, uh, cardiovascular exam looking for anemia or any murmurs GRT exam, looking for, I guess, stigmata of alcohol use or any chronic disease. <coughs> uh, 
uh, in terms of bedside tests. Um, you know, these mainly revolve around the questionnaires. They could do spirometry, you could do urine ward tests if indicated. Uh, and in terms of investigations in depressions, that would be guided by your uh, exam findings. But, you know, a chest x-ray possibly, or a head CT possibly, if you thought there was anything like that going on. The bedside tests in depression include, you know, things like the K10, DAS21 and PCLC. And for perinatal depression, the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. In terms of suicide risk assessment, so remembering you're assessing suicide risk on whether the patient's had any thoughts, whether they've made any plans, um, whether the patient has any means to committing suicide, past history of suicide, changeability, uh, drugs and alcohol use, and any protective factors. So low-risk suicide is basically no thoughts of suicide. So in the management of low-risk suicide, you still want to use a GPMP, discuss the availability of resources, make an emergency plan, and identify community resources. And you would still want to make sure that you've followed up the patient, <coughs> uh, and usually weekly or second weekly. Medium-risk suicide is defined as having suicidal thoughts and intent but no current plan or immediate plans. In that case, you want to make sure you follow up in a week and do the same things in having a contingency plan, safety plan, and discussing availability of support options. And if you've got a high-risk suicide patient, uh, at a very minimum, you want to follow up within a day, but you want to consider the possibility of referring to uh, a patient under an involuntary treatment order, which we'll talk about. The general approaches to management of, of depression uh, are basically to establish a therapeutic relationship, change any lifestyle things that might be contributing, try and fix the actual problem if there is an identifiable problem, using psychotherapy and using antidepressants. In terms of antidepressants, you've got a couple of options. Um, SSRIs and SNRIs are a good place to start. So in terms of SSRIs, you've got citalopram and sertraline. Uh, so citalopram can be started at 10 milligrams a day and titrated up. Sertraline can be started at 50 milligrams and titrated up, and you can go up to you know 200 in sertraline. Amitriptyline can be started at 75 milligrams at night and metazapine can be started at 15 milligrams daily. You want to make sure that you've covered the advice of commencing antidepressants, so warning of side effects, um, you know, lethargy, uh, abdominal pain, diarrhea, nausea, and of course increased suicidality initially, uh, and, you know, symptoms of serotonin syndrome uh, are in there as well. So. Talking about those will increase compliance, and then advising that um, you know it can take up to six weeks for the true effect of the antidepressants to be felt. So you know pushing through those initial side effects to get into your therapeutic window is good. In terms of involuntary treatment orders, you need to have all of the following 
The person appears to have a mental illness. The person requires immediate assessment. Assessment can be made properly at an authorised health service. There's a risk of self-harm or self to others. There's no less restrictive way to assess the patient. And the person, the person lacks capacity. Um, and in terms of extra obligations for ATSI patients, you want to ensure that the treatment of care is appropriate to the patient's culture, practices and family wishes. And you want to have the collaboration of an Aboriginal health worker. Um, you can have community management orders and the criteria for instituting community management order are that the patient has a mental illness, the patient requires treatment, the patient is at risk of self-harm or to others, they're not able to give informed consent and the treatment plan can be implemented in the community. Now the process for a community management order is obtaining an interim order by a psychiatrist, having reviews by the mental health tribunal, uh, having the order regularly reviewed and the patient examined by a psychiatrist at least six weekly. Now all of this is there to, I guess, protect the patient and also you know, ensure that the patient's rights are maintained. So the principles of management of patient rights are that you want as little restriction on rights and liberty of the patient as circumstances permit. The carer is to be provided information about rights and entitlements. You need to provide information on how care goals are to be met, uh, information on the grounds for admission, and information on the proposed or alternative treatments and services available. Uh, and in terms of the protective mental health bodies, there's the Mental Health Review Tribunal, which reviews patients, hears appeals and hears applications for community management orders, and makes the overall decision about the treatment plan in terms of the GPMP for ongoing patient care for mental health, um, the components of a GPMP are to you know, use the forms ideally in best practice, record the patient details and demographics, the diagnosis, the goals of treatment, the plans to achieve the goals, have a review cycle and obtain patient consent to planning and billing. Uh, at this point, it's worth talking about bipolar disorder as well in context of depression. So bipolar is basically recurrent illnesses with episodes of mania or depression with return to normal function in between. Bipolar is divided into bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. Bipolar 1 disorder has one fully-fledged manic or mixed episode and usually depressive episodes. Bipolar 2 is defined as major depressive episode, at least one hypomanic episode, but no classic manic episode. So bipolar 1 is worse than bipolar 2. Bipolar 1 is one fully-fledged manic episode, and bipolar 2 has hypomanic episodes. Features of mania include reckless behaviour, overspending, hasty decisions, impaired judgement, increased sexual drive and activity, poor insight, variable psychotic symptoms. The DSM-5 criteria for manic episodes include uh, A, B, C, D, <coughs> with A being a distinct period for one week with persistent, elevated, expansive or irritable mood. B being three or more unusual features such as 
inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, decreased need for sleep, talkative speech, racing thoughts or flights of ideas, distractibility, increased goal-directed activity and excessive activity with painful consequences. C is marked impaired social or occupational functioning or a need for hospitalisation for psychotic features. And D is that the episode is not due to substance abuse or another medical condition. The medications used in bipolar include quetiapine, 300 milligrams daily, lithium, maintaining a serum level of 0.4 to 0.8, and lamotrigine, 50 to 200 milligrams daily.